Well, um, we are this morning continuing in our teaching series in the book of Revelation. And the title of the series that we have for the fall is called Reclaiming Revelation, Strength for Today, Bright Hope for Tomorrow. And part of that comes from our conviction that Revelation, uh, as the last book in the New Testament, has things to say to us today about our lives today. Sometimes we think about it or get caught in the trap of thinking that it's just a book of cryptic and mysterious future-oriented images that should help some people in some places some of the time understand what God is thinking, and we miss out on the fact that there's wisdom for living for us today right in the pages of Revelation if we have ears to hear what it is that God's saying to us. And I will, however, say that we're into the middle part of the book of Revelation, and the middle part is where we actually have to work the hardest to sift through and sort out some of the things that God might be saying to us today by his spirit. Because this is, this is just some weird stuff that comes up because it's rooted in a style of writing that we're just not accustomed to in the modern world. It's an ancient style of writing, apocalyptic literature that John is writing to as a pastor to his seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century. And he's reminding them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the things that are true and the things that they need to pay attention to, the things that they need to focus on and heed if they're going to be faithful to walk as followers of Jesus. And these people are under incredible pressure. They're under incredible pressure uh, of Roman rule and political constructs that are not friendly to them as followers of Jesus. And so this is a group of people who are being actively persecuted for their faith. And this is a group of people who uh, John himself walked this road. He was imprisoned on the island of Patmos uh, as a result of his taking a stand to refuse to participate in the cult of worshiping the emperor and declaring that Caesar was Lord and God. And he said, I can't do that as a follower of Jesus, as one who orients my life around what God is inviting me to do. And so the church and disciples of Jesus in that time were subject to incredible pressures that we even feel distant and insulated from here today. But it's important to keep that in mind when we read this because this was a word to encourage them in the very real situations that they found themselves. And so last week we looked at Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 7, and we covered a lot of ground. We touched on the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the tribulation, the rapture, the reality of persecution for the church in, the histor- in history, present, and future, and much, much more. So don't forget, you can always catch up on that kind of stuff if you, if you miss it. Um, we podcast all the sermons on our website, on Google Play, on iTunes. You can just sign up and always get the latest and keep up to date on that. But John gives us this insight, this window in that vision that God gave to him of um, what's, ro- what's unfolding through history. And he used the picture of the breaking of the seals on a scroll. And as each seal was broken open, we see that things on earth get really, really bad. And the reason for this is that both human 
and demonic forces have actively chosen to resist the way of Jesus. And when this happens, whether in John's day or in our day, the seals give us these pictures into what then transpires in that moment of resistance and conflict. We see in seal one, greater and greater conflicts and conquests. Jesus, when he uh, walked the earth, said wars and rumors of wars, they just keep getting increasing and increasing in our day and time. Greater violence, person against person violence, institutional violence. Uh, In the third seal, we saw that incredible hunger and injustice, systemic perpetuations of unjust conditions that allowed for famine to be perpetuated in the world. Uh, when the fourth seal was broken, we saw an incredible outpouring of, of sickness and disease and death. This is why most prosperity preachers avoid the book of Revelation at all costs. And seal five, we saw persecution break out. And we were reminded that those who follow Jesus are sealed, which means they're secure, but they're not safe. They're not exempt from times and places of persecution. And then the last seal, finally, of se- the sixth seal, rather, God said to humanity as if, oh, you'd like to be in charge of your own destiny. Wow. Well, let's just see how that goes for you guys. I'm going to just step back a step. And just let you guys take over self-rule and we'll just see how that works itself out. God turns humanity over to their own desires, to disastrous consequences. And John is driving, remember, at answering a core question for those who are listening to him today and in the ancient world. And the question that he's trying to answer is, what's wrong with the world? Like, why is the world so messed up? And and the answer from the start of the scriptures to the end is that evil has entered our world, has corrupted and distorted the plans and the purposes of God. But the good news that we continue to see throughout the book of Revelation is that evil does not get the last or final word. The last word spoken in Revelation chapter 7, after all of those seals are broken, is a word of comfort and shelter to those who follow the way of the Lamb. And though they walk, and even in the language of Psalm 23, through the valley of death's dark shadow, they do not fear evil, for the shepherd's rod and staff comforts them. The Lamb on the throne, Revelation 7, 16, says, is their shepherd? He's the one that's in charge and he will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and they will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. They are secure, but they are not safe, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes in an ultimate sense. So that takes us to seal six of seven, and we're going to see three patterns of seven that emerge in this middle part of Revelation. We have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls which get poured out. And so uh, we're at seal six of seven, and then at the seventh, then it initiates the next cycle. And so when the seventh seal is broken, it begins the next cycle of the seven trumpets. So turn with me in your uh, Bibles or on your phones or in your Jericho app to Revelation chapter eight, verse one. And we're gonna look briefly at the seventh seal. 
and then we'll move to that next section which describes the seven trumpets. So the first few verses of Revelation chapter eight, verse five. When the lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, the scroll of history, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. And another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. And a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. Old Testament language and imagery here. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. And then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and he threw it down upon the earth and thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. So we're going to pause for a minute here and look at what's happening in this window in this insight that we are given. Because at first, when the angel breaks the seventh seal, it seems like nothing is happening. It's just silence in heaven. But remember, there's something that's been going on around the throne from eternity past that continues, and that is worship. And so even worship pauses for silence. Why? What is this silence designed to do or to accomplish? Well, we're moved quickly to understand that this silence actually creates the dynamic around the throne of action where the prayers of God's people that have ascended to the throne room of heaven are being collected and heard. The prayers of the martyrs in chapter 6, they're crying out and saying, Lord, how long are you going to wait to act and move on our behalf? They're being collected. Your prayers, my prayers, the prayers of people throughout history are being collected. And, And it's this powerful visual picture of this amassing of all of the requests and petitions and praises that have ascended to the throne room of heaven that are like smoke from the fire on the altar. And the significance of this picture is absolutely incredible when you pause to think about it. Because One of the most powerful truths of the Christian life is that God, who created the very heavens and the earth and all that is in them, that sustains everything by his word, actually actively listens to you. He hears you. Everything that you say, every cry of your heart, every stammering attempt at prayer. All of this is listened to, and it's as if all of heaven quiets down to silence, to listen to the prayers of God's people. Even the thundering throne room songs are silenced while God listens. Friends, a reason that we pray is that God listens. God is hearing the cries of 
our hearts. And prayers are not just simply kind of stored up and cataloged in some eternal filing system. We see in this that they are returned again to earth with an incredible force. Thunder, lightning, earthquakes. This is the language that John wants to use poetically to help us understand significant things are being moved in the heavenly realms and in earth by the prayers of God's people. Eugene Peterson draws uh, the title of his book, uh, excellent little book on Revelation from this section, and he calls the book Reversed Thunder, and it's drawn from a poet that George Herbert wrote. And he says this, prayer is like reversed thunder because out of the silence, action develops. The prayers which had ascended unremarked by journalists of the day, returned with immense force, in poet George Herbert's phrase, as reversed thunder. They go up quietly, and they come down thunderously loud with a massive impact. Prayer re-enters history with incalculable effects. Our earth is shaken daily by it. Prayer matters. See, at Jericho Ridge in 2017, we've chosen to focus on two things that we want to grow and nurture in our corporate life. One is caring well for each other, and the other one is prayer. And the reason for this is that we believe that prayer is one of the most significant things that we can do as people of faith. It's one of the most powerful tools that God has entrusted to us. It's one of the most important and also one of the most practical things that a person can do. Because when you and I respond to that invitation that God has opened up to pray, to speak to Him, we're responding, yes, to participate in God's action in the world. Sometimes we think of prayer as very passive, as like we're just sitting there doing nothing, and I guess we're talking, and hopefully God's hearing it, and you know, maybe He'll do something with whatever it is that we're saying. But this picture in Revelation 8 reminds us clearly that God is gathering our cries, our praises, our petitions, our intercessions, and the prayer that ascended to Him is now descending again back to earth. And that God is actually utilizing our prayers in His work in the world. It's an incredible privilege that we have. Doesn't mean that God always just says, oh, okay, that's what they want. I'm going to give it to them. From experience, you know that to be true. There are often times when it feels to us like prayers are ascending and silence is coming back down. Even the martyrs. We're saying that to God, saying, are you, are you going to act or not on our behalf? There's a long period of time that has elapsed since what has happened to us and our cries for justice and your response, God. Could you get busy with that, please? And here's where I wonder sometimes if we don't take the privilege that we've been given seriously enough. I know for me, a lot of times I, I tend to treat prayer as an afterthought. Okay, 
there's a problem, a challenge, I'll pursue every angle that I can, and I'll try every strategy and initiative that I can think of in my head, and then, geez, none of those are working out. All right, finally, I guess I should pray about it. <laughs> when we come to the end of all of our initiatives and thinking, we put prayer, okay, fine. Prayer is often, if we're honest, our last resort instead of our first response. And I think that's why Jesus gave John this powerful picture in Revelation chapter 8. He wants to remind us, like prayer is, prayer is the most powerful and practical and earth-shattering thing that anyone can do. Doesn't matter age. Doesn't matter um, all of the other things that we tend to associate with power, control, really making things happen in the world. God just says, I'm going to open it up and just give everyone access to the most powerful, practical, earth-shattering tool that can move heaven and earth. And so sometimes I see, you know, cutesy posts and Instagram and on this about like, you know, prayer changes things and all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, it does. It's incredibly powerful. Prayer is our invitation to join with God in actively making a difference in the world. But you see, some of us are wired up as activists, so we don't see prayer as part of that. We see our movement into action as a part of activism in the world. And prayer, we think, that's some kind of mystical inner escapism for those who are too weak to act on their own or who can't figure it out and need to wait around. No, no, no. Friends, prayer is an active invitation for you and I to join and participate in God's kingdom coming and his will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's why, like Pastor Wally reminded us already this morning, we we're having a prayer night for Syria because we actually believe that when we gather and we fill Tyler and Lindsay's living room, and I do expect us to fill Tyler and Lindsay's living room. I expect to see many of you out there tonight. That we actually believe that what we're doing there has real and meaningful and profound impact on the course of people's lives on the other side of the world. We don't gather in their living room because we just think, oh my word, I just have no idea what to do about the conflict in Syria. It's just too complicated. It's too, there's nothing that can be done. No, friends, there is something that can be done. <laughs> we can gather and pray. We gather because we're shown that this is exactly what Christians throughout history have been invited to do. We don't gather and throw up our hands in defeat. We gather in faith and we join with the multitude around the globe and pour our prayers out before the throne, just like many people in many other places like Damascus are doing and saying, how long, oh Lord, must this continue? We cry out for you, God, to act. Prayer is the most powerful and practical and earth-shattering action that you and I have the privilege of participating in. There's so much more that could be said about that. 
but you can go back and listen to our series on kingdom prayer that we did earlier this year, and we're going to continue uh, through coming into uh, even next year to continue to try and grow us in our times of prayer, whether you want to join us for pre-gathering prayer, 9.45 till 10.15 in the media lounge. You come up the stairs, turn left instead of right. You'll find it, little room there, and I'd love to see uh, that room packed out. We usually have about 10% of people that come on a Sunday morning, adults, over there praying. We could do better than that. It would be great to do better than that. Have lots of you jam in there. And if you're not a, like, I don't even know how to pray, just come. There's great people who know really are great prayers in that. And you just learn a ton from just coming and sitting and being a part of it. And your heart would be really readied for our corporate worship time together. So that's all right, enough of the soapbox on prayer. We'll go on to the rest of the things in chapter 8 and chapter 9. There's lots more, that, there's lots more that's happening here. So I'm not going to put these verses up on the screen. Uh, John is writing in this apocalyptic style, and it's a lot more like poetry than it is like prose. And he's trying to grab us with these images. And these images were often meant to be heard instead of uh, pictured or artistically depicted for us. And so I'm just going to read it. If you want to sit there and listen with your eyes closed, you can feel free to do that. If you want to follow along, I'll read in the New Living Translation. And as you read, I want you to ask, what is it, what puzzles me about this text? What makes sense to me? And what really do I see is going on here? So I'll be reading Revelation 8 and 9, starting in verse 6. Then the first of the seven angels with the seven trumpets, they prepared to blow their mighty blasts. The first angel blew the trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. And one-third of the earth was set on fire, one-third of the trees were burned, all of the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea, a third of the water in the sea became blood, a third of all living things in the sea died, one-third of all the ships were destroyed. When the third angel blew his trumpet, a great star fell from the sky, it was burning like a torch, and it fell on one-third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star was bitterness, and it made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking this bitter water. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck and became dark. A third of the day was dark, and a third of the night. And when I looked and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air, terror terror, terror on all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from, to the earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless Pit. This is language from the book of Isaiah. When he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and the air turned dark from the smoke. And locusts came out from the smoke, and they descended on the earth, and they were given power to sting like scorpions. And they were told not to harm the grass or the plants or the trees, but only the people, and only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months, and pain like the pain of a scorpion sting. In those days, people will seek death, but they will not find it. 
They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Language from Jeremiah chapter 8. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads. Their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like a woman's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion. And they wore armor made of iron. Their wings roared like an army of chariots rushing into battle. They had tails that stung like scorpions. And for five months they had the power to ravage and torment people. The king is their king, is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, in the Greek Apollyon, the destroyer, or Satan. The first terror is past, but look, two more terrors are coming. Then the sixth angel blew the trumpet, and I heard a voice speaking from the four horns of the altar that stands in the presence of God. And the voice said to the sixth angel who held the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates River. Then the four angels who had been prepared for this hour and day and month and year were turned loose to kill one-third of all of the people on the earth. And I heard the size of their army, which was 200 million mounted troops. And in my vision, I saw the horses and the riders sitting on them, and the riders wore armor that was fiery red and dark blue and yellow. And the horses had head like lions and fire and smoke and burning sulfur billowed out of their mouths. And one third of all of the people on the earth were killed by these three plagues, by the smoke and the fire and the burning sulfur that came out of the mouths of these horses. Their power that was in their mouths and in their tails for their heads Their tails had heads like snakes with the power to injure people. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, bronze, silver, stone, wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders, of their witchcraft, or their sexual immorality, or of their theft. What in the world is John trying to say here? There's a lot of discussion among scholars to try and parse apart what what is he describing and also the timeline of events that he's describing. Some argue that John is trying to describe events that occur following or after the second coming of Jesus because they're just so horrific. Other people argue that John is giving a picture of things that accompany or that are part and parcel of Jesus' return to the earth. And one of the questions to ask us is, what has John been telling us so far in Revelation? He's been trying to help both us and his initial readers make sense of a world that is not as it should be. For John's churches, they're victims of horrible suffering and persecution. And so the natural question that they're asking is, God, why aren't you doing something about this? If you're holy and good and righteous and all of that stuff, why is my world so messed up? Why is the world so messed up? And so what's being pictured for us here in these seven trumpets is actually nothing new or divergent. John's not telling us something fresh that's happening. 
John's actually giving us a disturbing and grotesque image of God's judgment being poured out on sin and evil. The seven seals that we talked about last weekend actually probably describe the same series of events. And the seals unfold from the perspective of the church and how the church observes, sees, and experiences those things. But the trumpets unfold from the perspective of the world and how those who do not follow God experience and have perspective on the world. And it's not a pretty picture. John's just, he's wrestling and struggling for language even to try and describe the horrific encounters of people who have set themselves up against God. But even in the midst of this, as he's describing God's judgment, he's trying to communicate something that we often miss, and that is good news. God's judgment is a a terrible reality, but it's also an important one for us to keep in our minds. One of the privileges Uh, that Meg and I and people from our church have is participating in work around the globe. And one of the things that we've had a privilege to do is go to Tanzania and uh, meet and listen to the stories of persons with albinism uh, and with Peter and Debbie and and under the same sun. And albinism um, is a genetic condition where a person has no melanin in their skin, in their eyes, or in their hair. And in Africa, due to the prevalence and the belief in witchcraft, people with albinism are hunted for their body parts. And so we've been to um, East Africa, I've been four times now, sat with hundreds of people, listened to their stories of injustices that they've experienced. Some of you have met some of these people. Miriam has been here last fall. She was here worshiping with us at Jericho. Or our young friend Adam was here a number of years ago. They've both been victims of horrific attacks. And when you listen to people like Miriam talk about how men came into her house and and pinned her down and hacked off her arm with a machete, these men were, were acting under orders to sell this for money. You can't pretend that evil doesn't exist in our world. That evil is just some kind of philosophical construct. And sometimes in the West, we like to get all sophisticated and pretend that evil is metaphysical and that, you know, it's out there somewhere. But I, for one, do not want to live in a world where Miriam's attackers go unpunished. There's a cry that God has placed into our spirits for justice when wrong is done. And this is what John is getting at here in these chapters. What's being vividly imagined for us is God's judgment against evil and sin. So why in the world is God's judgment good news? Judgment actually says that God cares. Our choices matter to God. Judgment says that God takes evil and sin seriously, and judgment says that God is not indifferent to, nor is he tolerant of evil and sin. Judgment says God will move against evil and sin. And this is the picture of this section of Revelation. It goes from chapter 8 all the way through to the end of chapter 11. And John's trying to help both his church and us understand God is not silent or refraining 
from judgment. Rather, judgment is coming, and we'll see ultimately judgment is coming, but also judgment is being worked out and needs to be worked out on the stage of human history. It may not always be as situationally specific as we would like. It may not always be on the timelines that we would like, but God is responding. Remember, this whole section is couched in God's response to the prayers of his people. The prayers of those who have suffered injustice, who are crying out to him, God, I need your kingdom to come. I need your will to be done here on earth. Not in some ultimate sense. I want it now, just like it's done in heaven. Because part of God's character and his kingdom is a kingdom of justice. And justice means that God will judge evil and sin. And so these are the images that John's putting in front of us to wrestle with in these seven trumpets of judgment. And they're graphic. This trumpet one that sounds, a third of all the vegetation is burned up. Then trumpet two, a third of all the ships, the seas, and stuff in the seas perishes. Trumpet three, a third of all the rivers are poisoned. People drink from them and they're poisoned. Trumpet four, a third of all the sun, moon, and stars are darkened, physically altering day and night. And again, when we come into these numbers in the book of Revelation, they're not to be taken with a sense of mathematical literalness. These numbers for us are symbols. They're not statistics. Because if they were statistics, uh, life on earth would just cease to function. Even after trumpet one, it just would not be able to proceed. And so John's not telling us about a literal star falling from the sky into the sea or all of the pictures that he's giving us. He's helping us to understand that when people continue to stand for long periods of time in opposition to the rule and the reign and the ways of God, even nature itself begins to contort and no longer operates in the way that it was created and ordered by God. Even the physical world itself is in revolt and chaos. This is not a Genesis 1 world that we live in where God pronounced everything that he made as good. Evil and sin has twisted and contorted that. And this is, this is true in every aspect of our world. And so John's just trying to help us see and understand that when God moves and unrolls his plans of history, just like we talked about last weekend, and, and things, people, and stand in opposition, that bad things happen. But John also wants us to understand clearly and get a picture of God's mercy in this. How in the world is this cataclysmic destruction, you say, a picture of God's mercy? Well, the language of this is very specific. And as God's judgment is poured out, a third becomes for John this symbol of mercy. It's a reminder that God's judgment is not total and absolute. Two-thirds are 
is articulated in chapter 9, verse 20. God wants people to come to a place of repentance of, from their evil deeds and turn to Him. And so one of the gifts that God sometimes in His mercy and grace allows is the gift of time for people to do this. And so even as much as this grates horribly on our sensibilities and our desire humanly for justice, sometimes God actually gives this even to very, very, what we would say are evil and wicked people. A gift of time to repent. When I was a kid, uh, I grew up playing the trumpet as a musical instrument, not very well, and then I got braces and it got a whole lot worse and harder to play the trumpet. But one of the things that I liked about the trumpet is that it was a loud instrument. Like in the band, you knew when the trumpets were playing. Not like those gentle wind instruments or the flute which Meg grew up playing or those raspy, squeaky clarinets. No, no, no. The trumpet, in my mind, was a serious instrument. It was an instrument that, you know, held, commanded authority. They used it in the military. You know, that seemed really exciting to me. Um, so think about in Scripture here because John uses very, this notion of trumpets being sounded. Can you think of examples in Scripture where the trumpet shows up. Just shout them out. What are trumpets used for in the Bible? Cherubim. Yes, cherubim. Yeah, they have trumpets. Yeah, what else? Who else gets trumpets? What else do trumpets do? Trump of God. Yeah, it's an announcement. Yeah, what else? Yeah, absolutely. In history, you know, you think about the pomp and circumstance, right? Yeah, what else? At Jericho, the trumpets sound and the walls all fall down, right? Yeah, they blew the trumpets. Where else did trumpets show up? Or what else are they used for? Celebration, absolutely. Yeah, when they call uh, people for feasts and for celebratory moments, there's trumpets that are used for that. Think about Gideon. What did he give his soldiers? He gave them a trumpet. What else? Sandy. Right. Scipio Africanus, the, the Roman uh, general, had the presence of mind to set up trumpet blasts, and that stamped, stamped it. Yeah, exactly. There you go. You see, Sandy's not only a retired pastor, but he's a historian as well. <laughs> love it. I love it. It's great. You get this picture, though, like of the trumpet is something significant, like it announces something. Sometimes a trumpet is used to sound the alarm, like to wake people up from a sleep and say, hey, 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 the enemy is coming. Danger is here. Pay attention to give them a signal. Something's wrong. You need to be awakened to a reality. And that's what John's driving at here in Revelation. These trumpets are warnings. They're warning signals to people who actively practice evil. Those who steal, John says, those who practice sexual activity outside the bounds of covenantal marriage, those who choose to take lives, those who do not acknowledge God, they are on a pathway to experiencing the judgment of God unless they change. 
And so John says it's like these trumpets are being sounded to wake them up, to there's danger ahead for them. And John gets even more graphic with trumpet number five where locusts come up from the abyss. This, this image of Satan and demonic forces who are at work in the world. Chapter 9, verse 11 says, their king is the angel from the bottomless pit, the destroyer. And the language is all over the place of uh, Satan's intentions, which we know are to steal, to kill, and destroy anything or anyone that declares their allegiance to God. But even here, notice that there's mercy mixed with judgment. It says they're at work in the world, but there is a limit to their power. They're given both a time limit, and they're also given a limit of what they can and cannot do. And in the book of Revelation, the language of given is always used to remind us that the power of evil is not absolute. Even in places like Tanzania and with Miriam and many others, even in situations where evil seems to be triumphing, evil will not and cannot ultimately win. It is leashed. It is bounded. And so even when facing satanic attack, the trumpet of judgment reminds us that there is protection. And it's on a leash. Just like with the seven seals, we see this sense of willful resistance on the part of some people in this text and in our world against God and his character and his plans and his purpose. And God calls them to repentance. And yet people still steal themselves in self-sufficiency against Jesus. And so the point that John's trying to help them understand is enmity with God is a ferocious assault on mankind and only in repentance are we saved from the terrors of sin. And then the sixth trumpet blows, and it unleashes another terrible army, numbering 200 million mounted troops. And they come, John says, from the east. And in John's day, the eastern edge of the Roman Empire was the Euphrates River, and there was a genuine and very real fear of foreign invasion coming from that place to topple their empire. And John sees this vision of an unleashed army that just ravages destruction. And the point that John is making is the same. Judgment is not pretty. Many things about it are different. But a world where from every corner of the globe, people realize something is not right in our world where God is whispering and sometimes shouting, humanity, you are ignoring me. You are ignoring my ways. You are headed for destruction, and you need to turn and repent. That is the point of the seven trumpets. They're warning shots fired across the bow of humanity. They are a call to wake up. And this is perhaps one of the most saddening and sickening parts of the whole Bible. Because the tragedy is, as it unfolds at the end of chapter 9, that those who are headed for destruction, even though they're warned, even though life gets incredibly difficult, even the pressures bear down on them and on our world, there's still two responses, Revelation 9, 10 says, that exist. And the first response is simply that things get so bad that people say, I've had enough, I want to die, I cannot take it anymore. 
and they seek and they pursue death, but in Revelation chapter 9, verse 6, it says they'll pursue death, but they will not find it. What's going on here? Even in this, God is unpackaging mercy for them. Death flees because God is seeking repentance from those people. Daryl Johnson puts it well in his commentary when he says this, we need to be reminded of the fact that death is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. In reality, the worst thing that could possibly be true of your life would be that you live in unrepentance and you miss out on life with the living God. And so even death is kept at bay, giving more time for repentance in God's mercy. But there's another tragic response that people take, and it's the most horrifying thought of all. The trumpets sound, and they do not automatically create repentance. They can awaken people to their need for repentance, but it's not a guarantee. God doesn't force people to their knees in repentance to choose him. The trumpets tragically show us the hardness of heart, even in the face of an encounter with God, is always possible for us as humans. The trumpets sound, they show the wicked world being offered mercy, but the offer is not accepted. But never let it be said that God has not done all in his power in order to bring men and women to their senses. Hardness of heart is always possible. It's a choice that each one of us has. And friends, that's our role and our calling here in this place and in this time. Our core purpose is to disciple and grow as a disciple so that you can be an ambassador of God's love everywhere that you go this week. And sometimes ambassadors for a country or for an agency deliver hard news. Sometimes ambassadors bring words of warning that continuing down a particular course of action has dire consequences. And so you and I and the church of Jesus in this city is called to be trumpeters in your family. You and I are called to intercession, first and foremost, to get on our knees and to cry out to God and to plead for his mercy, to plead for his mercy for our own lives, to plead for his mercy for those who do not yet know him in our city and in our world, that they would follow him, to invite God to break through into their lives, because God reminds us that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to life and repentance. And so let's join him in his desire by making a fresh commitment to that prayer. And in a few moments, we're going to take uh, some time for silence. And the spiritual practice of silence allows us to kind of still a cacophony of noise, not only externally, but internally in our souls. Because we live in a very, very noisy world. We're surrounded with urgent messages all the time, from our phones to ads to people clamoring for our time and attention, and silence allows us to just get to that place where we can actually hear the one voice that really matters. And God may have a message for you today in an area of your life. It might be in about an area of your life or your heart that needs attention, 
one of the challenges that we face as human beings is that repentance or keeping a soft heart towards God is one of the most difficult things for a human being to do. And so we're just going to take some time this morning to allow God to speak to us. It won't be a half hour like in the text, baby steps. It's going to be just a few minutes for us to just quiet down and engage and attend to maybe areas of our life that need attention. To prevent God, prevent hardness from growing in our heart toward God and toward other people, toward issues in our world that we need to care about. And so I want you to use this time to ask God, God, is there any place in my heart that is growing hard? Let him speak into that place. Let him soften it. Ask God. Say, God, would you soften that area of my heart? You may also want to use this time to pray for someone whom you know whose heart is not soft towards God, who's walking far away from him. Maybe it's a person in your family or extended family. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a neighbor. Take this time to just ask God for mercy. And maybe you're here today, and if you've never taken that step, and maybe your heart is still hard toward God, friend, I plead with you, do not miss another moment because you and I are not guaranteed tomorrow. It's not a safe or wise decision to say, I'm going to live however the hell I want today, and then tomorrow I'm just going to ask for forgiveness. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. That's why the Bible repeatedly uses the language, call out to God while it's still today. And maybe for you today is that day. It's that day of salvation, your day of decision. If that's you, use this time to say, God, I need you to soften my whole heart towards you. And then tell God and someone else that today was your day, that you want to walk in repentance and freedom. Dustin and the team are going to come now, but we're going to take a few moments in just silence, maybe three minutes or so, uh, of just being still, and silent and quiet before God. They're not going to play background music or noise. There might be a little bit of hockey sounds coming or people shuffling. That's okay. The purpose of this time is just simply to allow us to be mindful of what we sometimes block out by being busy or preoccupied. I think Eugene Peterson says it well. He says, Sometimes we are just so busy doing everything we can to make light of what God is speaking to us. So we use every stratagem we can find to avoid dealing with the consequences of sin. But God will not let us off. He will not indulge our inattention. However practiced we become at turning out or tuning out the sounds that we do not want to hear, including the sound of God's displeasure at our sin, God finds new ways to penetrate our defensive deafness. So let's just make a commitment individually and collectively to be among those who listen, who heed, who pray in ways that shake heaven and earth because we heed what the Spirit is saying to his church. So we're going to take time just to be silent. You'll know the time is over when Dustin and the team lead us in songs of response. And when the music team starts, uh, the prayer teams will move to the back and to the sides. And if you want to then join someone else, in prayer together, we would invite you to do 